The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How you guys doing today? All right, excellent. Hey, a couple of quick announcements before we get rolling here. Um, just to keep you in the loop about things that are happening here at Heritage, some things are going to be changing here um, in October, October 2nd. We are going to be going from a single service to two services here at Heritage. Uh, that means that there will be a 9 o'clock service in the morning and an 11 a.m. service uh, in the morning. And uh, we're doing lots of things to try and make sure that we, we don't end up with, you know, two separate groups of people that never interact and never intermingle. We're, we're doing our best to kind of structure that in such a way that we don't lose the connections that are naturally being made here by the Spirit of God and, and by the will of God. So, um, we're, but we also recognize that at the same time, one of the big issues here is that as things have continued to expand and grow for our church, that um, it is also necessary to, to make this big thing that is happening smaller in some way, to keep um, the interconnectedness of the body uh, with one another. And so, in order to do that, we, we've realized, man, the further that people stretch back into the auditorium, the more that there's a disconnection. Uh, the further that people stre- stretch back from uh, the speaker up here in the stage, the more that it, there's, it's easy to be distracted by people coming in and, you know, lots of different things that are, that are going on. And so it's really an effort to serve and to be a blessing to you guys. So be aware, that's coming up again. October 2nd is when that starts, 9 and 11 a.m., also, um, there is, a, in advance of that, a volunteer orientation training day. Uh, this is September 10th. It's a Saturday. It's at 12.30 at the Hub. It's for current and for potential volunteers. And there will be child care provided, lunch provided, and um, there's a list of volunteer opportunities and more at the, at the uh, uh, table next Sunday where you can sign up. At the info table, excuse me. And then thirdly... Wednesday night services and Awana will also be starting up, and that starts up in September. September 7th, we'll be back on schedule for our regularly uh, scheduled Wednesday night services. So we've had a great time during the summer, doing the, the first Wednesday of the month, those barbecues and games and worship, that, all of that has been fantastic, it's been wonderful. Um, but now also we're, we're transitioning into the school year, and we're going to get Wednesday night's up and rolling again. So those are things that are important. Also, check your bulletin. Make sure that you're informed about the things that are going on. While you are sitting there, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 11. While you're doing that, I'm going to pray. Father, all I have is words. And the words that I speak, Lord, uh, on their own, don't have any power. But you promised that you would send the Spirit, the Comforter, who would speak to your people, to those that are called by your name, and that you would draw them unto yourself. And so, God, we ask that you would do exactly that, that through your word and through our time together, because of the working of your spirit, we might be equipped, our hearts might be challenged and changed, that we might be encouraged and strengthened by you, that we might receive grace from you today. So, God, give us ears to hear your voice. Give our hearts the ability to receive your word implanted deeply within us, Lord. And change us. Give us a will that is ready to step out in obedience, in faith, based upon your word. To take action with the things that you've said. And we ask this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Amen. 
2 Corinthians 11 is where we're going to take our text from today. A little fun fact for you. You're, you're probably doing a lot better in life than you actually think you are. If you don't think you are, it's possible that you could be judging yourself by the achievements of your peers. And equally possible that those achievements are being broadcast freely for all to see via social media. Most commonly, I think, through Facebook. What you may not realize is that these achievements are really just a smokescreen. They're, they're concocted. They're, they're made up via something called image crafting. And you have likely, if you're on social media at all, have likely fallen for it hook, line, and sinker. And to be fair, it doesn't mean just social media. It, can, it happens on Hulu. It happens on Netflix. It happens everywhere that we go. It's the billboards that we look at. It's the radio advertisements that we hear. It's the commercials between games. It's everywhere. Image crafting is the term which applies to any social media update which is designed specifically to affect the way that people think about the person posting it. More often than not, it's used to present the said person in the best light possible. So they're, they're putting their best foot forward. So, you know, they don't just have a regular dinner. They have an epic meal, right? And they take a picture and they throw that up on Instagram. They don't just have a, a, a great husband or a great wife. They have the best husband, the best wife. And anytime they do something little, you know, that goes up on Facebook, goes up on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Vine, uh, a whole host of other things that are out there. It, it just is ridiculous. More often than not, it's used to present this person in the best light possible. That's, that's really what's going on here. This is someone, so we are led to believe, with a stimulating and fulfilling career. And as an added bonus, a loving and sexy soulmate in tow. The filling between these two main slices of the image crafting sandwich consists of words and pictures showing just how fun and interesting and dynamic that person's life really is. And they positively love reminding every single one of us about it. Now, these collections of cherry-picked moments are the, new, are the new social currency. It's how we one-up one another. So somebody one weekend puts up a picture of them and their honey at a waterfall hiking, and they're both looking athletic and posing with a giant waterfall in the background. And, and, and you see that, right? And immediately you say, well, I want to have that life. I want to have that awesome existence. So the next time you're at the beach, right, you make sure you, you, you position the umbrella just perfectly. You make sure that everything is looking just great. The sun is just low enough on the horizon. You can get the beautiful sunset. And you, you know, and now you're, you're one-upping that as well. And then, of course, somebody else is seeing your picture and going, well, that, that's the life that I want. But is life really like that? Is it all waterfalls and... Ocean sunsets? Is that how life really works? These cherry-picked moments are the new social currency. We don't just tell the people around us what we're doing. We have to show it to them. And we have to show it to them in such a way as to make our lives look like shining beacons, beacons of positivity and accomplishment. If you're not hitting the necessary targets each day for living the dream, then you may feel like your life, by comparison, is, is frustrating. Maybe somehow more dull than everybody else's life. Only the truth is, it isn't. Anyone who is swayed by the image crafting that goes on has forgotten one key thing. Which is that for every Kodak moment that these people are broadcasting, there are several less desirable ones that they are leaving out. We all bleed red. We all are human. So you see that picture of the ocean, a perfectly placed umbrella, two chairs sitting out, a drink in between them, the sunset perfectly there, this beautiful couple stretched arm taking the selfie from the back so you can see the whole thing. 
I think, oh, how wonderful, how awesome that must be. What you didn't know is that one of them got food poisoning the night before. And they can barely hang on as they're sitting in the chair. They're just trying to make the best of this moment. What you don't know is that to get away to that waterfall, they had to endure the screaming kids who were like, no, mommy, please, don't go. I love you, don't leave me. What they don't tell you is for that perfect family vacation, there have been months and months of rigorous planning. And along the way, their plans have been frustrated. And yes, they got that perfect picture of, you know, the Golden Gate Bridge or whatever it is on that, on that vacation. But along the way, there's been bickering in the car and kids going, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? <laughs> and we get this one little snapshot And we think that that's what life is like around us. These people are not special by any means. They have inflated their own sense of worth by shining a spotlight on a couple of choice moments from their otherwise normal and mundane existence. While at the same time pretending that the bad stuff in social media terms doesn't exist at all. This entire routine in society leads us to compare ourselves with the lives of others. It leads us to a place where we're we're always looking at what we see as the perfections of the lives around us and comparing that with the imperfections of our own lives. We feel like somehow we're being cheated out of the life that we could be having if only, if only we were someone else. And so we strive. We strive for the imaginary goal of perfection. We keep thinking, if I, if I just had one more successful workout, one more fantastic vacation, one more extraordinary date, one more Instagram-worthy moment or meal, then I will finally have arrived. But that seeming perfection that we all allow ourselves to take in, guys, it's just an illusion. It's just an illusion. (laughs) You see, this is a story as old as time. It has always been this way. This is the mistake that the Corinthians were in danger of falling into as well. They thought that the evidence that God was on your side was the, the hashtag blessed life. As a result, they they looked at the life of the Apostle Paul and thought that maybe, maybe, just maybe, he had done something wrong, something to offend God, to make him angry. This idea was actually reinforced in the Corinthian church by some traveling people that Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 11.5, super apostles. He says that very sarcastically. And these super apostles, they would waltz into towns where Paul had planted churches and and began talking about the good life in following Jesus. They presented their own lives as, as this sort of triumphal life. They had little suffering because they were in God's favor. They bragged about their accomplishments and diligence in following God. They pointed to their own lives as a benchmark for anyone that wanted to really seriously follow God. Or follow Jesus. And when they talked about Paul, they talked about him as being weak. They they noted that he wasn't a great public speaker, he wasn't super eloquent. And they they poked fun at his ministry as though he wasn't really doing anything good for the kingdom of Jesus. And in our passage today, Paul resorts to some extreme sarcasm to get the point across about this kind of carefully crafted perfectionism so let's pick it up sarcasm for those of you who don't know me well is my first and primary love language and uh if you're around me very much you know i say everything with a deadpan face and a lot of times people you know they can't tell if i'm joking or not and so i'll say things and accidentally offend somebody uh but it's because i'm saying something really snarky and sarcastic and they think i'm serious 
That's kind of the issue here with Paul. As he's talking in this passage, he's going to be really snarky and really sarcastic. And he's expecting that we're going to pick up on that. Now, I, I've definitely run into people as they've read through this that go, man, I don't get Paul here. I mean, what's the deal? He seems like he's bragging. What's going on? Well, again, let's read this with a tone of sarcasm. Well, let's pick it up in verse 18. It says this. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools on being so wise yourselves. For if you bear it, for you bear it, if someone makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or, or puts airs, puts on airs or strikes you in the face. And to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm, I'm speaking as a fool here. I also dare to boast of that. Well, are, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Well, are they Israelites? Well, so am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? Well, well, so am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. We're not talking Cave Junction here. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at the sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, in danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardships, and through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without even food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall, and I'm not indignant? If I must boast, I'll, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. At, at Damascus, the governor under the king Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Oh, oh, oh I, I must go on boasting. There, there's nothing uh, to be gained by it. And I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I, I don't know. God knows. He's talking about himself here. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On, be, on behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except, now check out this change in tone, except in my weakness. Now, now, now get the, the big picture here. Here's essentially what Paul is saying in these verses. Well, okay, if, if we're going to stoop to having a ridiculous bragging war, I mean, if that's what's really going on, okay, I, you know, there's a few things I could, I could possibly brag about in my dedication to Jesus. I mean, just, let, let, me, let me think here. Let's, let's, let's make a list. Um, well, I was, I was shipwrecked in the sea. Um, oh, they beat me with rods. That was that time. Um, oh, they whipped me. I had that a few times. <laughs> um, I often go without food. I've almost drowned in the river a couple of times. I spent a few nights floating around in the, <laughs> in the ocean after a shipwreck because I was following Jesus. There was that time. Um, oh, there was the time I, I was in a city and the governor of the city wanted to kill me. And so they had to stick me out the window of the wall in a basket and lower me down so I could flee under the dark of night. There was that time. Oh, yeah. And then there's all the times that I don't sleep and I don't eat. And I'm heartbroken and heartsick over the people within the church that are being wiped out by sin and are being hurt and destroyed. 
Oh, yeah, there's that stuff. Oh, you know, I, I guess I could brag about that one time God took me to heaven. I saw a few things. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, those are all things that I could definitely brag about to you to prove to you my worth as an apostle. I could brag about all that stuff. I, I could present you with all of these things as my credentials, but let me tell you what qualifies me. Let me tell you what makes me a minister of the gospel. As he shifts his attention in a way that we wouldn't expect. Instead of bragging about his strengths, he begins to brag now about his weakness. Watch this. Let's pick it up. Chapter 12, verse 5. Now on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but... I refrain from it so that, there, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, things that God had shown me, you know what God did? He says, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. And then three times, three times I came to the Lord and I, and I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Here's Paul. He's like, okay, I, I realize you guys want me to compete with the super apostles. Okay, I'm going to be stupid like they're being, okay? Let's talk about the things I could brag about. There's a few things. He goes over as this. He says, but you know what? That's not, that's not what qualifies me. That's not what makes me who I am. That is not what has shaped me. What has shaped me are not my successes, my perfections. What has shaped me are my imperfections, my weaknesses, my thorns. Now think about this. Think about this. He says three times, I ask God, please. I don't want to struggle with this. I, I don't like this. I don't like the way it makes me feel. I feel weak. I feel vulnerable. I feel broken. You, you have to get rid of this. And God said, no. I won't. I won't take it away. I'm not going to do it. No. He, you really thought about that? how God cripples us on purpose? How he leaves weakness and imperfection in our lives on purpose? I mean, if he wanted to, right? At salvation, he could just snap his fingers, the Holy Spirit comes on us, and now all of a sudden, we're absolutely perfected. Why does he wait? Why does he allow the struggle? Isn't it frustrating to think that God will sometimes, you'll say, God, I am battling with my own heart. I'm battling with sin. I'm struggling with this thing. God, please take it away. And he'll say, no, I won't. Isn't there a conflict that comes up in us when we hear that? Don't we want the triumphal life? Isn't there a part of us that is going, no, 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 tell me how to get victory. Tell me what the formula is that I can somehow apply to my life. And, and I'll, 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 I'll apply those five points. Make sure that they all rhyme so that I can remember it. That they all start with P. 
I want a nice alliteration, and I want it all boxed up in a nice little package that I can put in my life and execute, and I'll finally live in such a way so perfected that I don't need Jesus. (laughs) Really, that's what we want, isn't it? We want our independence. We hate brokenness. We hate it because it cripples us and makes us need Jesus. Now notice as he goes on, as the, as the Lord answers him, verse 9, it says, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now notice Paul's response. Okay, okay, God, if that's true, if, if you want me to be weak so that I will cling to you, if that's true, then, then what do I do with my heart? Okay, okay, I know what to do. Therefore, he says, I will boast all the more ga- gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses. I'm content with insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, things that go wrong. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, Paul is saying, do you want to know the secret to being a serious follower of Jesus? It's not your perfections. It's your imperfections. Imperfections make you dependent. Self-reliance makes you independent. When we are weak, then we are strong. When we recognize our need for Jesus and that he alone is our only hope for righteousness, that he alone is our only hope for power to live, for acceptance, for love, for peace, when we recognize that, that we are strong. But, but can we just get honest for a moment? How often do we actually think like that? I know it's, it's been my experience uh, in the church among God's people that I'm a little closer to the super apostles paradigm I mean, if you, were, if you were to ask me, just gut-level honesty, you know what I want? I want superhumans. I want, I want somebody up here on stage that week after week is going to pre- present to me the successful life. You know why I want that? Because I want to dream that that's real. I want to dream that there, there's a place that you can reach that you're just sort of in this groove where everything always goes right. You don't sin. You never fail. There's not hardships. There's no trials. There's no difficulty. And everything is just sort of like on cruise control, this slow, sweet climb into the arms of Jesus. That's what I want to believe. But is that real? Is it honest? You know, I find that in the gathering of God's people, it often seems to be a little bit closer to the social media image crafting than transparent dependence upon Jesus. Now, I've been thinking about why. Why that is. Why is it that that Christians are afraid to talk about their weaknesses? I mean, week after week, Sunday after Sunday, we, we gather together, and how often do you sit among the people here and talk about your struggles with one another. How often does that happen? How often do you find yourself confessing your sins like the Bible commands you to and going, hey brother, you know, this week I have been really wrestling with this issue and it's been a battle for me. I've been asking God to take it away but the struggle is still there and it's pounding me. 
mean, how often does that conversation take place? Or is it just the generalities of, hey, how's it going? Oh, it's going good. Yeah. I mean, you know, blessed. A lot of times, these kinds of gatherings are a little bit more like Facebook, aren't they? We present the very best of ourselves. We put an image forward because we want to make sure that, you know, everybody knows that we're living the blessed life too. We're afraid to talk about our weaknesses. We're afraid to talk about our difficulties. Now, now let's take this even a step further. Imagine for a moment that the Apostle Paul had written another chapter in accompaniment to this, detailing to us the thorn in the flesh that he has struggled with. What if he said it was, was like lust? What if he said that was it? Or, or, or pride, or he steals stuff. What if he said it was, he was a liar and he really struggled with that? What would we do? What would we do with that? What if he said, okay, my thorn isn't a sin issue. It's a person that I hate. It's Barnabas. Right? What if he said that? He's like, this guy is like, a messenger from Satan. He is the thorn in my side. He never goes away. I'm, three times I'm like, God, please kill this guy. God's like, no. My grace is sufficient for you. I mean, isn't there, isn't there a part of our hearts that would be like, okay, if he named the sin, I feel like he would go from Paul the Apostle, Super Apostle, maybe down like a little notch, right? He's, what? He struck, what? Whoa, Paul, you, it's okay to say you have a thorn in the flesh and just leave it general, but like, don't talk about your lust. Don't talk about your pride. Don't talk about the fact that you lie. Don't talk about, you know, don't talk about those things. Don't talk about the fact that you hate Barnabas and wish he was dead. Wouldn't you feel like somehow he is less apostolic? You know, in, in thinking about this message, I asked my wife the other day, we're in the car, we're, we're driving back to the house, and, and I said, okay, so if you had an opportunity, let's just say you're pastor for a day, okay? And you have an opportunity to address the body at Heritage Christian Fellowship. Uh, what, what would be one thing that you say, I really want you to get this. I really want you to understand this. I really want you to see this. She was silent for probably a good, I don't know, 30, 45 seconds. And then she spoke up and she said, I, I think I would share with them that it's okay to be honest and transparent. You know, it's funny. My wife, <laughs> I am so thankful to God for her in my life because she keeps me honest. Her name, Crystal, it, it actually, the name means transparent, and that's, that's exactly how she is. If you know her at all, you know she's transparent. And I have watched over the years how uncomfortable she makes people. Now, and I love her to death. I know her. I know her heart, right? But she can make people uncomfortable in a hurry. <laughs> you know how? Because she's really honest. I've watched many times as my wife has shared about our life together. And it's always interesting to see how others squirm when she simply just tells them our story. Not being negative, just telling others about her personal experience in life. You see, our story is one that has been wrought with lots and lots of difficulty. And when she talks about the difficulty in marriage in the first seven years, oh, she'll, she'll tell you. She's like, oh, man, it was hell. I am not going to lie. It was, it was so hard. And I'm thankful that God has been working in my husband. I wouldn't trade him for anything now, but I wanted to kill him for about the first seven years. Now, I was there for that. <laughs> right? 
And I'm not going to lie, it was tough. It was difficult. Or, or when she talks about ministry, this is where I really see it. You know, there, I, I think there's a lot of young people that really are very idealistic about ministry life. And they, they kind of come into this, this thing and they're like, man, it's going to be so awesome. I'm going to be um, a part of a ministry family. And, and specifically, you know, she'll be talking to like young women or whatever who are like, I just, I want to marry a guy who's going to be a pastor and love Jesus. And she's like, don't, please. It's just, uh, that is a hard life. Like marry a plumber or, you know, Know that you're called to that because that's going to be tested in you. Now, she loves me and she loves our life, but when she begins to describe in detail how difficult it has been for her to have a husband that is in ministry or how brutal people have been to her personally within the church that we planted in Cave Junction, the stories, ways in which she's been wounded and hurt, people begin to squirm and get really uncomfortable. They just can't hardly stand to listen to that hurt. They can't, they, they, oftentimes, I think sometimes they even will be like defensive, right? She's like, no, I mean, it was really hard. I, mean, I had these ladies one time who like, they planned a women's event, but it was not a women's event. It was like a trap, Right? And, and, and that trap was to get me there so that they could all sit around in a circle and be critical of me and talk about the things that they thought I should be doing as a pastor's wife. Now, she talks about that, and people, as you guys feel that tension right now, you guys, they feel that, and they go, ah, uh, okay, well, you know, well, praise God that he brought you through that. And they start trying to, like, spin it, right? They're trying to manage it because I don't like how uncomfortable this imperfect image of what I want it to actually be like and the way that you're messing with that, I don't like how uncomfortable that makes me feel. It bothers me. I struggle with it. See them resort to trying to spin it to a positive. Like, isn't it great what God has brought you through? You see, people seem to prefer a different narrative than the reality. The discomfort of seeing life as it is. They don't like it. What do they want? They want super apostles. They want super pastors. They want something that is bigger than life to hope in. It's as if we are all begging, please, please, just let there be somewhere a perfect life that I can, that I can believe in. And just don't, don't take that away. Don't destroy that. Don't destroy the illusion that there isn't. I need it. We all want to see someone who has it all figured out. We all want to see the triumph, the triumph of a personality that doesn't struggle with sin. We want to see the blessed life being lived out by someone else so that we can believe the lie that perfection is ultimately found here. Now, in thinking about this, I was thinking about perfectionism, right? Like, why do we prefer that? I mean, why is it that we like our pastors to be superhuman in our own minds? Why is it that we like to lift people up and, and say that there is this glorious standard where people don't struggle with sin and their lives always go right and things are always well? Why do we like that? Well, I think at its root, perfectionism is probably a God-given desire like so many other things. The problem is, is that it, it gets twisted by our own sinful nature. So I, I want to answer some questions about this. Why do we long for perfection? Why do we long for that? Grab your Bibles, flip over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18.
where Paul writes this. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility or emptiness, non-satisfaction, if you will. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, knowing that he had a plan, right? That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but check this out, here it is, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. See, here, here's what's going on. God put in us by the Holy Spirit a longing, a desire for perfection. That's what... That's what compels us to move forward. That's what keeps drawing us. We're like, okay, I know that the only place perfection is found is in you. It's in redemption. And so that's a part of our makeup. That's a part of who we are. Now, it's a good and godly desire in that way. We intuitively know that we were made for something better than this life and what it has to offer. But therein lies the rub. Because we intuitively know that we're made for something perfect, we oftentimes resort to looking for it here and now. And this is why we wrestle with imperfections in life. Matter of fact, in 2006, there's a uh, uh, Brock University uh, professor who did a study uh, and examined perfectionism as a health link in nearly about 500 Canadian adults between the ages of 24 and 35. The study assessed participants for three different dimensions of perfectionism. The first one was self-oriented perfectionism, in which individuals impose high standards on themselves. And then there was socially prescribed perfectionism, wherein the individuals feel that others expect them to be perfect. And then there was others-oriented perfectionism, in which individuals place high standards on others. So there's, again, those three, those three categories. First, self-oriented perfectionism, I must be perfect. There's socially prescribed perfectionism, which is everybody expects me to be perfect. And then there's others-oriented perfectionism, I think you should be perfect, okay? So they assessed those things and, and found out that those with socially prescribed perfectionism, where the pressure is as a community, or they feel internally pressure within a community or their social setting to be perfect in some way, that the health risks shot up by 50%. 50%. That means if you are a part of a community where you feel the pressure to perform to some way, in some way, just... Nail it all the time. You are 50% more likely to live under unreasonable stress, to suffer health consequences, and to ultimately take away your health in life as a result. So why do we wrestle with imperfection. I mean, if everybody has it, right? And we know that we're made for something perfect and there's this, this social preference for perfection and there's the internal sense that we should be more perfect than we actually are. And, and, and why are we wrestling with it right now then? Well, because a formula for happiness is, is really simple. It goes like this. Reality minus expectations equals happiness. When I take the way things really are and I minus out the way I expected them to be, you get a scale there for how disappointing your life really is. 
Do you see how that works? And the problem here with us is that when we as a community of people begin to image craft, we rob people of properly placed expectations. When we meet together Sunday after Sunday and only share the Facebook-worthy tidbits of our lives with one another, we blind each other from the reality that it isn't heaven yet. See, the Bible plainly tells us that life will involve struggle. Okay, first question. Why do we long for perfection? Romans 8 tells us it's built into us and it's a gift from God that makes us long for redemption, the full redemption of our bodies, the return of Jesus, the world being made right. Okay, but we twist it and we want it now. Right? That's what sin does. Give it to me now. Well, why are we wrestling with that? Well, we expect it now. Right? And God is saying, no, it's, it's later. It's at the full redemption of the sons of God. So then, third question, why doesn't perfection exist now? Well, this is the gospel. Perfection doesn't exist right now because God is revealing himself to humanity. The gospel proves that we're going to fail. This is how we know that. We, the, the gospel tells us, listen, you need a Savior. And you will always need a Savior. And it will always be that way on into eternity. You see, we have an adversary right now who's roaming around like a roaring lion. He's seeking someone to devour. We have a world system that is oppressive to our faith that is trying to rip out the roots of the seed of the gospel planted in our hearts and lives. We have the problem of indwelling sin in our own hearts and are bent towards what ultimately destroys us. We long for what is bad for us. And the whole story of human existence is one of struggle. And and until ultimately Jesus returns or until we die, life will be filled with conflict. There will inevitably be varying seasons of intensity, but it will be filled with conflict. It means that there will be plenty of opportunity for failure in our lives. It also means that there will be plenty of opportunity to prove and demonstrate to us that Jesus is a redeemer in our lives. So, we know then that we long for perfection because God has put that in us. And that we wrestle with imperfection because we expect all of the benefits of the the gospel to all appear right now. But that's not going to happen. The gospel tells us that there is a full plan here. And right now, God is allowing the struggle of sin because it produces in us dependence upon him. When we're weak, then we're strong. You guys tracking with me? Okay. Then can we just ask a simple question? Why does God persist in allowing imperfection? Why not just fix the whole thing right now? I mean, you ever wonder that? Like, snap your fingers. We don't want anybody for president but you. Please, do something. Make it right. Redeem. You see, the whole story of human existence is the story of God being content to let imperfection exist. So that, and this is so important, you got to hear this. I know it's a little warm in here today. Focus, bring your attention in. He allows imperfection to exist so that we can know him as he truly is. Listen, if God is to be fully known, there are things that we cannot know about God if everything is perfected. I mean, if he just fixes it all right now, how will we know grace? How will we know mercy? How will we know that he provides peace? If everything is made right in this moment right now, there is no longer a need to know those aspects of his character and nature. And so he allows imperfection to remain. 
We won't know mercy apart from the fall. We can't know unconditional love outside of our betrayal. And God could snap his fingers and fix it all right now, but he is content to let the brokenness remain. God is content to let our weakness remain because our weaknesses produce dependence on him. It keeps us close. Keeps us close. Listen, some of you have been wrestling with sin for a long time. I, I know the frustration of feeling like I can't get over this. You ever felt that? Like you, you pray, God, take it away. Come on, please. Just take it away. And the same struggle is there, and you feel like you confess again and again, or you feel like you come to him in brokenness again and again, and you are just worn out with feeling like you're broken all the time. You ever had that? You identify with that? Listen, sometimes it is the will of God to cripple you for life with weakness. Why? Because it produces a new dependence upon him. So what does God do with our imperfection? And that's the next question. What does God do then? Okay, so I get it. He put in us a longing for perfection. It's not happening now, and that's why I find myself very dissatisfied with life. Wondering, how come I can never attain, I can never get to, life is never perfect. Why do the kids cry when we're about to go on vacation? Why do I get food poisoning when we go to the beach? Why is it like this? Why is it never smooth and perfect and right? Why is it when we go on family vacation, there's fighting in the car and smiles in the Instagram pics? What does God do in response to our weaknesses? He makes provision for our imperfection through his son. If you're taking notes, write this down. What does God do in the presence of our imperfections? He makes provision for our imperfection through his son. He says, listen, don't let that define you. And second of all, he gives power in our imperfection through the Holy Spirit. He says, okay, I'm not only going to allow you to sit with this imperfection and make provision for when you fail, but I'm also, through my connection with you, through a sort of umbilical-like, life-giving power via the Holy Spirit, I'm going to walk with you in your imperfection. And I'm going to fight alongside of you. And I'm going to fight within you. And I'm going to fight beside you. The truth of the matter is, when we back everything up, we realize that God is not as hard on us as we are. Now, that's not an excuse to be casual with God's grace, and so we can say, oh, God loves me anyway, and he knew I would have imperfections, so I'll just dive into my imperfections. That's stupid. But he's saying, listen, your imperfection exists because you're a sinner, and I'm with you, and I've made provision for that. And I'm present with you in that. Let's fight together. Let's struggle together. Let's cling to one another. Let's stay close. You're going to need me on this. Okay, so how then should we think about this? How should we think about perfectionism? How do we combat that in our own lives? Guys, listen. Church, very easily, this gathering of people, very easily can get to a place where your perception is that I have to come in here and somehow mask or hide in some way my imperfections. That it's not okay for me to struggle with sin and it's not okay for me to talk about my weaknesses and it's not okay for me to to, to divulge the inner life struggle that I have. How do we combat that? If if that's not what God intends, how do we combat that? Personally, there are three things that I found to be very, very helpful in this. Number one, how do we combat perfectionism? Number one, we regularly preach the gospel to ourselves. 
we say, listen, <laughs> this is why Jesus came. Because apart from him, I'll drive it in the ditch every time. This is why he came. <laughs> when I'm striving for perfection, I'm saying to myself that the, my worth, my value, my identity is found in how I perform. Okay? But the gospel says to us, that is not your worth and value and identity. It's found not in how you perform, but in the fact that you were made in the image of God and redeemed by the blood of Jesus. The biggest price that could ever be paid for your life was, sat, was paid for on the cross. That means, then, that means when you preach the gospel to yourself, you're not afraid to face your weaknesses. So we preach the gospel to ourselves. Number two, we pull our identity from the gospel. We say to ourselves, I am an imperfect human in need of a perfect Savior. What I do right or wrong does not determine my worth or value. Listen, if you're not resting in and celebrating your vertical identity as a child of glory and grace, you'll shop for your identity horizontally. You'll think that your sense of worth and value is found in the way and how well you do in life. And you'll feel the need to image craft here at church and in social media. Thirdly and lastly, we need to be honest in our gospel community. We need to be honest in our gospel community. Because my faith is in Jesus, I can be real about my struggles with other people. Because what they think of me and my struggles doesn't matter any longer. What matters is my honesty before the Lord to say he alone is my only hope. He alone is my only savior. And that means that I don't have to be afraid to come to my brothers and sisters and say, actually, man, I need some prayer. I got this going on and this is a struggle in me and I'm, I'm sick with it. We don't have to be afraid to confess our faults to one another. Matter of fact, 1 John chapter 1, it goes on to say to us, hey, listen, if you say that you have no sin, you're a liar. But if you confess your sons, your sins, then the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all unrighteousness. He's faithful, he's just, he forgives our sins. We don't have to hide from our weakness. We don't have to hide in shame because the gospel is true. We've been in Philippians chapter 3 uh, for the last few weeks and on into chapter 4 uh, last week. And one of the things that Jeff said in there that I thought was so profound was this. He said that um, as Paul is, is talking about following his example. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me, right? That the same apostle who said that is also the one who said, I have not yet attained. I'm, I'm not there. I'm not perfect. I haven't gotten there yet. But this one thing I do, I press on. I haven't arrived, but I'm striving. I'm not arriving, but I'm striving. I've got the hand of Jesus, and I'm running with all of my strength. I'm pressing on for the mark of the high call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not perfect, but I'm leaning in. Guys, uh, if there's one image I could leave you with today, it's just a word picture. It's stolen from the book of Isaiah. He talks about how this guy wakes up in the morning, right? And he goes out to the forest. And he's out there, in, he's got an ox with him and a bunch of ropes. And he gets out into the forest and he, he's looking at all these different trees, you know? And then he finds a good one. Like, oh, yeah, look at this, look at this tree. This will be perfect. And he grabs an axe. And with the sweat of his brow, he works and works and works until the tree falls down. And then he comes through and he cuts all the limbs off and he gets out his ropes and he ties the tree 
to the ox. And he says, okay, we're going home. And then the ox is like, oh, oh, the tree is so heavy. And he's carrying it, he's dragging it through the ground all the way to the house. When he gets it to the house, he goes, hmm, what's the best way to use this? I know, okay, I I need to cook some food. I'm really hungry. So I'm going to chop this part off over here. So this part is going to be firewood for, for food, right? And then, then he says, okay, now look at this part right here. Now this part would be perfect for my God. And, and he takes the wood and he draws pictures on it and he scribes it and, you know, turns it about with a compass and then he takes carving tools and for weeks and for days he's just working on this thing sculpting it crafting it to look exactly how he wants it to be and then he sets it up in the corner of his household he can barely lift it it's this giant tree this giant carving he brings it over to the corner of his household he sets it up in the corner of his household he goes oh oh and then he falls down on his face and he worships it and he says you're the god who made me and isaiah's like that's stupid. Now, he doesn't even realize that part of it he used to cook his food. Then the other part, his ox is sweating, and he's out there in the woods all day long trying to figure out how to get this tree home. Then he finally gets it home, and he's the one who marks it all out, and then he burdens himself to try and set it up in the corner of his household, and he goes, oh man, you're the God that made me. He's like, that is that's crazy. Look at how much work has gone into that. A God like that can't save. You make a God like that. Listen. Your imperfection is like, or your, your desire for perfection, excuse me, is like that idol. It is tremendous, tremendous work to try and hold that up. To try and always look right to hide your weakness, to mask your imperfection. The day of freedom comes when, when we burn the rest of that sucker. We go, my only hope is Jesus Christ. And in that moment, in that day, we can do what the Apostle Paul does. We can glory in our weakness. Because when I'm weak, I'm grabbing a hold of him, and I'm strong. Let's pray. Father, pray for encouragement for those who have been struggling with perfectionism. Lord, I know for some, the need to look good on the outside has pressed them to keep others at a distance because they can't be fully known. And so they've withdrawn from community. They've withdrawn from relationships in their lives because they feel the need to hide. Lord, set them free. Father, there are those in here who have been burdened with feeling like they're on this hamster wheel that they can never get off of. That there's never any rest in life because they're never quite perfect enough. God, today, would you set them free because of the gospel? Would you reassure them that what Christ did is enough and that you're with them in the struggle? Lord, there are still others who, because of their perception of what the good life is, have been highly critical of those around them. They've been overly harsh, not willing to suffer with the weaknesses of others. Through your word today, would you call them to repentance? Would you draw them unto yourself and remind them of their own imperfections and their need for you and through that produce in them great compassion for those who are struggling and wrestling? And God, set us free as a church. Set us free to be honest and transparent with one another. To tell life as it is, not the edited Facebook tidbit version, but to be honest, God, about what it means to be humans who need a Savior. 
transform this in us. Work this deep into our hearts. In the name of Jesus, amen. Would you stand? The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. God bless you guys. Have a great day and we'll see you next week.